This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com Funding for this class is provided by Benjamin Arieh and family in loving memory of Raphael, son of Chacham Rabbi Chia. Lessons in Tanya The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg Chapter 11. In the last two chapters, we described the level of the tzaddik and the two levels of the tzaddik, the incomplete tzaddik and the complete tzaddik. Now, God created the world in an equal balance. Every positive has a negative. Every minus has a plus. Because God wanted to give us freedom of choice. And therefore, just like we have the level of the tzaddik, we also have the opposite of the tzaddik, what he calls the rasha. And just like within the tzaddik, you have two levels, the incomplete tzaddik and the perfect tzaddik, which really there's no comparison between the two. So too, within the Russia itself, you have two levels within the Russia: The incomplete Russia, who's not a perfect Russia, and you have the perfect Russia. Perfect Russia. Now, what's the definition of a Russia? What's the definition of a tzaddik? We had already learned that the definition of a tzaddik and a Russia is not as it's conventionally used. You, conventionally, we use the word saint. He's a saintly person. A saintly person, a tzaddik, a good Jew, person who does the right thing, is honest in business, does the right thing, gives charity, comes to shul, studies Torah, perfect, the paragon of virtue, a perfect person. A rasha is a wicked person. No goodnik. Evil person, selfish, self-centered, self-absorbed. Just a negative person. But he proved that that's just a borrowed terminology. That's not the accurate description, definition of a tzaddik and a rasha. The accurate definition of a tzaddik is a tzaddik is someone who no longer has a yetzahara. He no longer has a comfort because his godly soul is so powerful. He feels the power and the force of his godly soul. He's no longer tempted to do anything wrong. It's as if his yetzahara is gone. The benani, the average Jew, and halavai, we wish we could even reach the level of the Benini. It's within our potential, but halavai. We're not even sure we know anyone who's on that level. A Benini is someone who's perfect. Beha- behaviorally, the person is perfect. The person thinks like a Jew, speaks like a Jew, <clears throat> acts like a Jew. Everything they do is perfect. But they no longer, but they still have, they still have the struggle. They have the temptation. They cannot change themselves subconsciously. They can only change themselves consciously, how they behave, whether they respond to, them to, to their temptations or not. That's the average, the Benini. And then you have the Russia. The Russia is one who his behavior is affected. Not just his, his uh, inner life, his emotional life, but even his behavior is compromised. His thought, his speech, his action is compromised. So, that, so th- these are the three levels. The tzaddik, the bainni, and the rasha. So, when he discusses the complete tzaddik, 
or the incomplete tzaddik. The difference in the tzaddik is that a tzaddik, he says, is someone who has no evil. What do you mean he has no evil? It means that he doesn't even feel he has evil inside of him. The incomplete tzaddik still has traces of ego inside of him, traces of evil, but he, it, he no longer feels it. Consciously, it's, he feels he has no ego. He has no evil. He has no temptations. He, has, he can feel, he can experience. He has no temptations. He's not tempted towards anything materialistic, towards anything external, superficial, anything that's skin deep. He's only tempted to do godly things and, and holy things. This is the tzaddik. The opposite, the Russia. You can't say that the Russia, the Russia who's good, has to be the equivalent. That the Russia, the evil one, has good, but the good, he doesn't feel he has good in him. Just like the tzaddik, you said the tzaddik. Tzaddik veraloi is a tzaddik who feels, who the ra is, he has the evil. He has the ego, he has the negative, but he doesn't feel it. So if, it's, if the negative bal- is balanced with the positive, the Russia has to be the exact opposite. That the Russia has good, but the good is totally nullified. He doesn't feel the good inside of him. No. Obviously, that's, n- that's not true. Because the tzaddik is in the level of a tzaddik. You have two levels. The level of the tzaddik, by definition, the word tzaddik, by definition, is someone who has transformed himself that consciously he has no ego. He has no evil. There is no I. He's purely godly, a godly being. And therefore, when you say he has a negative, he has a ra, he still has ego, it could only mean that he has traces of it, but he doesn't feel it. The definition of the word rasha is only regarding the behavior. That behaviorally, he's doing something wrong. That behaviorally, he doesn't have the discipline that's necessary to lead a disciplined life. Behaviorally, he's... He's, um, he's eating that junk food or he's living that uh, lifestyle or he has weaknesses. He doesn't have the strength or the self-discipline to lead a purely Jewish lifestyle. So behaviorally, he's, he has negative behavior. But of course, he still has good inside of him. He feels the good. So when we say that Russia is good, that Russia is not good, we're only talk, we're talking about the behavior of the Russia. One of the opposite of the other, the Russia who knows good, is the antithesis of the Tzaddik who knows evil. This means that the good that is in this Russia's divine soul, which is in his brain and in the right part of his heart, these being the dwelling places of the divine soul as explained is subservient to and nullified within the evil of the animal soul which stems from the klipa, which is on the left part of the heart as explained in chapter 9. Thus, in the rasa who knows good, the evil of the animal soul overpowers the good of the divine soul to the extent that the good is subservient to the evil and is nullified within it. This rank, too, is subdivided into myriads of degrees. He says that the Russia is a Jew who behaviorally, because of weakness, doesn't have the self-discipline, um, behaviorally falls through and acts in a way, in a way that's contrary, contrary to, to the way you should behave. 
And he says, as a result of this behavior, the good is nullified to the evil. Now, it's interesting. The Benini, the average, we said there are five levels. There's the Tzaddik, the incomplete Tzaddik, the Tzaddik, the Benini, the average, and then you have the Russia, the incomplete Russia, and, we're gonna, and the complete Russia. Now, the Benini is the Jew who's perfect. Behaviorally, the, perfect, the Jew is perfect. Behaving properly, doing every, everything is perfect. He has a discipline. Of course, he's not in control. He can't achieve a core transformation. It's not within our control. Like a person who diets for 10, 20 years. doesn't mean that you've achieved a core transformation, that you're no longer tempted to act in a certain way, but you have that discipline. You have that self-awareness. Fine. But when you, although he's doing 613 in thought, speech, and action, he's doing nothing wrong. Everything about him is perfect. He's thinking correctly and he's speaking correctly and he's acting, behaving correctly. Nevertheless, doing a good deed doesn't have such an impact on you that it will transform the negative inside of you. But he says by doing something negative, by doing a misdeed, it has the effect on you that it actually causes the good within you to be nullified before, before the negative. So it appears, it appears to be that the negative seems to be more powerful than the positive. As is reflected in, the, in Jewish law. Reflected in Jewish law, if you come in contact with something that's impure, you become impure. Today it's not so relevant because we all have a status of impurity. Like a Kohen is not allowed to go into a graveyard. You know. But if you come in contact with something impure, it makes you impure, a spiritual impure. Why doesn't it work the reverse? If you come in contact with something pure, you should automatically become pure. Why is it that we come in contact with something impure, you become impure? Is, is holiness so vulnerable? Is holiness so fragile? At the moment it comes in contact with something impure, it immediately contaminates and defiles it, spiritually defiles it. And... That, that seems to be what he's saying. That seems to be the case. That the effects, if we do something wrong, when, a Jew st- when you, t- if you tell a lie, or if you do something that you shouldn't be doing, it affects your soul. It impacts your soul. It has a profound impact on you. It, it clouds your soul. It creates a, just like a scar, a spiritual scar. Just like you have psychological scars. You also have a spiritual scar. It's very painful for the soul. And it has a deep impact on the soul. The soul is very sensitive. Unfortunately, the reverse is not so. The, the ego, the animal soul, is not so sensitive. So if you can do mitzvot, and do mitzvot, and be perfect, and think like a Jew, and speak like a Jew, and it doesn't have an impact. Your egos get stronger from day to day. You're still tempted, and you're still connected to materialism. It doesn't have such a powerful impact on, on, on your ego. But the reverse is true. The godly soul is so sensitive that the smallest thing registers and affects it and impacts it. And it's hurt by it. And therefore, the moment a person displays some weakness, moral weakness, and the person does something that you know is wrong, that you shouldn't do, or thinks things that you know is unhealthy and unwholesome and unproductive, or speaks in a way that we shouldn't speak, he speaks slander, or we do things that we shouldn't do, it affects you tremendously. And it weakens you. 
it weakens the, the godly soul within it. That it no longer has that force that it should have. What if the person doesn't care? Oh, that's... that's what if the person doesn't care over and over and over and they're affecting everybody around them who's entrapped with them and being tortured and no matter what you do still a Jewish soul. That's actually the end of the chapter. That's the, the second level of the Russia. That's the Russia who's completely evil. Just like you have the perfect tzaddik who's completely good, not a trace of ego, is totally selfless. And the other extreme, you also have the person who no longer has any conscience, the person who doesn't feel guilty anymore. Imagine a Jew who doesn't feel guilty anymore. <laughs> you can imagine how low, how low that person has fallen. Okay, so what do you do with that person okay. if that person's... What well, if you do, if you have that person in your life? Well, the good news is that unlike the tzaddik, can get rid of his evil, or totally sublimate his evil, but the, the rasha cannot get rid of the goodness in him. It's there, it's buried, there's a thick crust that covers it, but it's there. Everyone has a moment of truth, everyone has a point which cracks through the, the, the shell and enables you know, the fruit to come out. But um, it's very difficult. I mean, there, there, are different, there are different... People respond to different things. Unfortunately, many people don't respond to anything when there's, God forbid, pain and suffering in their life. That's, that's what reaches them. That's what cracks through the shell. That wakes them up. I mean, people are asleep. And, but the different levels of sleep. The Russia is someone basically who's asleep. But the different levels of asleep. You have uh, people who are light sleepers. So the smallest thing wakes them up. You know, they hear, they're inspired. They hear something good. They respond. They connect. They're attracted to it. Maybe it's not a powerful force in their life, but at least they, they, the smallest awakening reaches them. Then you have a person who's a deep sleeper. And you have different levels of sleep. Then you have someone who's in a faint. Then you have someone who's in a coma. You can't reach him. No matter what you do, it's like in a spiritual coma. They're just, they're just, they're just unreachable. But um, the soul is there. The spark is there. And everyone has a point where, you know, there are no atheists and foxholes. Everyone has a point that hits home. Even the person who's semi-psychotic, who's so asleep, that they simply don't respond to any, any normal stimuli. Again, this is an extreme case, but nevertheless, it's like uh, the famous novel of, uh, by uh, Albert Camus. Stranger. Stranger, right. So he had a person who was like psychotic, you know, felt nothing, was totally disconnected, and he murders. And then the day, the night before he's hanged, suddenly comes alive, he wakes up, a real human being, all the humanity that was suppressed all his life, suddenly comes out a warm, full-blooded human being who's in touch with himself, in touch with his true emotions. So everyone, everyone has a point. But we, we actually do have an effect. We have an impact. Because if you believe, if you believe in the soul, and as we discussed last week, the fact, God doesn't give us a challenge that we can't handle. So if a person, if God made this person so morally crippled and so morally handicapped and so morally challenged, obviously this person must have, must have been chosen by God 
personally because he must have such strength of soul, such strength of character that we don't have because we, we don't have such challenges. In other words, the fact that he's in such a challenging situation, such a dark place in his life, even though he came to it by his own choice, through his own choices, and he's addicted, whatever it may be, but the fact is that God doesn't, doesn't give us a challenge that we can't handle, doesn't allow us into situations that we can't deal with. So the fact that we are in such a situation means we believe in God and we believe in divine providence. We believe that this person has tremendous, tremendous, tremendous potential because there are people who were in his situation that have transformed. There are the, we have in Jewish history real sinners, real terrible, terrible sinners who, who did teshuva. That's why in Judaism a person can always, teshuva can always return, can always come back home to a place he never really left because deep down that spark is there. And, deep, and not only that, they have certain abilities that we don't have. So if we look at a person a certain way, just by looking, thinking about that person in this way, even speaking to this person in this way, because that's the power of speech. The Talmud says that slandering another person murders three people, affects three people. The one who speaks, the one who listens, who's entertained by this juicy piece of gossip, and the one who is, who is the topic of discussion. And the question is, he's the ultimate victim. Why, why is he suffering? That's speaking evil about him. Why is he punished? The answer is not a punishment. It's the nature of speech. Nature of speech is to reveal what's hidden. It's just the nature of speech. So if you speak positive about a person, you evoke the positive within them. If you speak negative about a person, you evoke the negative within them. It's like a child. Tell a child you're bad. The child will live up to your expectations. You tell a child that they're good. Now, without romanticizing and without pretending that the person is anything than who they are, looking them squarely in the eye, yes, you're abhorrent, you're acting abhorrent, what you're doing is terrible, but let me tell you that you have potential that I don't have, that none of us have. You're an extreme case. You're morally handicapped. You're morally challenged, like no one, no one else that you know. Obviously, Hashem trusts in you. Hashem believes in you. Because He wouldn't give you a test that you can handle. Hashem believes that you have the capacity to deal with such a dark place. You have the capacity to turn around this situation. So Hashem believes in you. I have to respect you for that. Because to be in such a dark place, to be so morally handicapped, to be so morally challenged, how can anyone overcome such a negative challenge? Obviously, Hashem believes and has a confidence that you have the ability to do this. For this, I respect you. For your potential, not for who you are right now. For who you are right now is abhorrent. And if you look at that person, that way, your perspective, thinking about that person, honestly, without being romantic, without romanticizing and trying to make believe that there's something that's not there. But honestly, looking at that person that way and thinking about that person that way, and even speaking about that person that way, to him and to others, that alone could help evoke that potential within this person. So we can have a part in, in, in helping that person help himself. Ultimately, he can, he's the only one who can help himself. We can't live another person's life for him. We can't control them. We can't tell a person what to do. Every human being has to make their own choices. So it's just our thought. We don't have to communicate this concept to that person. It's just our higher being of thinking that way and putting that in the universe that thinking that way thinking. and and even communi- communicating is even more powerful even to yes, not, not necessarily, necessarily to him it could be to others even even to yourself or to others that's what I mean. about him 
That's what I'm saying. Yeah, communicating, right. Not to that person. You know, if you can communicate it to that person, then if, if that's at all possible, that, that may be also powerful. But the truth is, if you really think a certain way, the person feels it. Something will get through to the person. If you really look at them, because, you know, a person never, may never have heard that. You see, most negative behavior is really defenses. Defenses against insecurities, defenses. The person who is very arrogant is usually the most insecure. Right. And you disarm them because you're coming from, from left field. He doesn't expect it. He expects, okay, let's fight, and here's my armor, and this is your armor, and, and I couldn't care less about anyone, and you get defensive, and no one changed because of criticism. But you're coming from left field, and you're totally, you taken by surprise that, hey, I'm not, I'm not be ta- being taken in by your defenses and your armor and, 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 your, and your charade and this facade. And, uh, Underneath all of that, there's a, a, an innocent little soul, an innocent child, that's pure and innocent, that's hurt. And underneath all of that, Hashem believes in you, and you have tremendous potential. If you really think that way, and you internalize this thought, and you approach the person that way, it will seep through, and, and the person will totally disarm them, because they're not expecting it, they're expecting a fight. You're going beyond the whole, the whole frame of reference, the whole... Fr- you're coming from a whole different perspective, a very deep, genuine perspective. People respond to genuine. If there's something genuine there, people respond. If there's, there's something to work with. There's something. So if we are genuine about it, and we have a very genuine, correct response, it will seep through. And maybe that alone will help evoke a different type of response, instead of the usual you know, clash and, the, and dead end and going nowhere and everyone becoming more entrenched and... Um, so this is the Jewish way. The Jewish way is without romanticizing and seeing something there that's not there and buttering over or ignoring. Head on, we know. But there's a different angle, different perspective, different way of looking. But this is the extreme case. That's the rear case. That's the complete Russia. The one who's totally evil. There's no, nothing good left in him. Consciously, at least. Feel, doesn't feel guilt anymore. But here we're talking about the rest of... Most of us fit into the, this category. The in, incomplete Russia. We have, we have... Yes, we've done things that we shouldn't do. And it has affected us. It causes the good within us to be nullified. before It weakens the good within us. That the good within us is no longer forceful and powerful. And doesn't have the ability to totally overcome the negative. And therefore we don't have the discipline to totally lead a, life, to, to totally lead a wholesome lifestyle although we want to, and if we don't, we feel guilty about it. But we can't, uh, as a result of, the, of, of, of these negative behaviors. Okay, and then within this level itself, you have many levels. You have subdivided into tens of thousands of different degrees and different levels, as he's going, as he's going to explain right now. You have people who um, just rarely or temporarily show weaknesses, and then you have people who um, more regularly show weaknesses and don't have the strength to overcome negative behaviors. This strength, too, is subdivided into myriads of degrees. Just as the rank of the tzaddik who knows evil is subdivided into myriads of degrees with respect to the nullification within him of the evil to good, so, too, are there numerous subdivisions within the rank of the rasha who knows good with respect to the nullification of good to evil. 
as the Alta Rebbe continues. The difference between these myriad levels lies in the quantity, i.e. the extent and the quality of the nullification and subservience of the good to the evil. Hashem forbid. The quantitative difference between one Rasha who knows good and another is indicated by whether the good is merely outweighed by a majority of evil or whether the evil is, say, 60 times more prevalent than the good and so on. The qualitative classification hinges on what aspect of the divine soul is subservient to its evil counterpart. In one Rasha, the divine soul's holy capacity for affection may be subservient to the animal soul's affection for forbidden matters, while in another Rasha, the subservience may lie in another area. The Alta Rebbe now provides practical illustrations of different levels within the ranks of the Rasha who knows good. There is one in whom the subservience and nullification of good to evil are exceedingly minor, and even these minor degrees are not permanent nor recurrent at frequent intervals. Rather, only on infrequent occasions does the evil prevail over the good, conquering the small city, i.e. the body, which as mentioned in chapter 9 is likened to a small city, whose conquest is the objective of both the divine and animal souls. Furthermore, even when the evil does not conquer the body, Yet not all of the body falls under its dominance, but only part of it, subjecting it, that part of the body, to its discipline and causing it to be a chariot to the evil, i.e. as subservient to the evil as is a chariot to its okay, so, so he's taking one extreme. The, 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 the highest level of the Russia who's good is basically someone who's almost like a Benini, he's almost perfect. But occasionally, and rarely, and even then... Only partially does he display some weakness and um, he falls for the, uh, for the evil, or for the ego, or for the natural soul and acts in a way that's inconsistent with, you know, with, with, with your true self. And even then, it's only one of the garments and it's only, only, and only something minor. He does something minor. We're not talking about anything major. He doesn't do anything outright vulgar or major. You know, like he's not telling an outright lie or he's not saying an outright uh, piece of juicy piece of slander. It's something that's very, very minor. And further causing that part of the body to serve as a garment, when one of the animal souls aforementioned three garments will be clothed. As mentioned in chapter 6, the garments of the animal soul are sinful thought, speech, and action. In the case of the Rasha, now described the evil of the animal soul. Even on those rare occasions when it does prevail over the good, can do no more than express itself in one of these areas or garments. Furthermore, even in this restricted field of expression, the evil is further limited in that it can motivate this Rasha to commit only minor transgressions, as the older Rebbe now continues. Namely, the animal soul prevails either indeed alone, in the commission of minor transgressions only, not major ones, Hashem forbid, for his animal soul has not the power to prevail to such an extent. So we're talking about a Jew who, because he has the fear of God, or because he is connected and open to spirituality, will never, God forbid, transgress against a, uh, by violating a major mitzvah. But something may, minor, occasionally, rarely, he may fall through on something minor. It may omit an act of omission or an act of commission, he may do something that's considered like a minor sin or... And even that is rare. Or, 
maybe when it comes to action, even a minor sin, he, he can't even bring himself to do a minor sin. The only thing is, his weakness may express itself and may prevail. Or it may prevail in speech alone, but merely in the utterance of that which borders on slander or scoffing, the evil being too weak to cause him to engage in actual slander or scoffing and the like. God forbid he would never bring himself to slander another person or to scoff at another person, but could have something that borderline. It's, it's, it's a slight that could be considered slander. It's indirect. Something, something slight, something subtle, more subtle than a direct, vulgar expression of slander. Because he couldn't bring himself to do something totally wrong, something that's absolutely wrong. He just can't bring himself to do it. He's just, he has that inner discipline. He can't. If it says in the Torah, thou shalt not, as the Kotzke Rebbe once said, you know, the, the great Hasidic master of Levi Yitzchak once asked his Hasidim to um, bring smuggled goods. It was before Pesach, the day before Pesach. He says, please bring smuggled goods. He says, Rabbi, Rebbe, how can we bring smuggled goods? The Tsar will hang you in public if he smuggled goods in Russia. He says, still, I want I want some smuggled goods. Within an hour, his house was filled with everything you can imagine. Then he says, okay, now go bring me a slice of bread. Slice of bread, Rebbe, it's before Pesach. We just burned the bread. You can't. He says, I don't care, bring me a slice of bread. One hour goes by, two hours go by, three or four hours later, they come empty-handed. Rebbe, we search in every nook and every cranny. cranny. We can't find a single crumb of bread. So Rebbe looks up to heaven with tears in his eyes. He says, God, look. You have the czar. You have an army. If you smuggle, you're hanged in public. There was a public hanging the other day and the day before that. And yet, the border is like a sieve. It's flowing through. Within an hour, I had my house was filled with smugglers. You wrote in your Torah, 33, 30, over 3,000 years ago, thou shalt not have a piece of chametz, a piece of bread in your house before Pesach. You don't have an army. We haven't seen you in close to 2,000 years. You destroyed the temple, you exiled us. But it says in the Torah, thou shalt not. It's better than all the police forces in the world, all the armies in the world. It's an inner discipline. The only way to stop crime is not by the fear of being caught. Because you, you, you'll outsmart it. You know, you'll be clever about it. Or, or you'll add money, or you'll have more police the only way to stop crime ultimately is an inner discipline, a fear of God, a sense of awe, a sense of God says it's wrong and it's wrong. End of story. Thou shalt not. Like which part of thou shalt not didn't you understand? <laughs> thou shalt not. The Torah says you should not steal, so you can't. That's it. End of story. End of discussion. It's an inner... So a Jew can't bring himself, can't bring himself to violate the Torah. It says in the Torah, don't do this, don't speak slander. How can I slander? Don't scoff. How can I scoff? It says, do a mitzvah. How can I omit it? It says, don't do Don't transgress. Don't trespass. How can I do it? But something minor, something subtle, something that's not black and white, it's not clear cut, in a moment of weakness, occasionally, once in a while, maybe, maybe he'll commit a crime of omission, a crime of commission in action, or there's a Jew in action. It's not even possible for him to do something wrong. Even a minor detail. But in speech, when you speak, no one sits down, no one makes an appointment to sit and slander. You don't make an appointment. Okay, three o'clock, I'm going to go now and I'm going to slander. 
you talk and conversation and you speak a little too much and something comes up and a little scoffing here, a little joke there and before you know it, you may have not, nothing outright, God forbid you wouldn't humiliate a person or embarrass a person but you may have said something that you regret later that you know was inappropriate so this is, this is an expression in speech, a moment of weakness in speech. But then there's a person who even in speech, he can't even, even occasionally, not only in action, even in speech, he can't, he can't bring himself to do something wrong, even something that smacks of, of something that's wrong. But only in thought. Or the evil may prevail in thought alone, in contemplations of sin which are in certain respects worse than actual sin. Thought is more refined than speech and action, and of the soul's three garments, it is one of the most intimately connected with the soul itself. Therefore, contemplations of sin can befoul the soul even more than the sinful deed itself. So the Talmud says, even thinking of sin, even if it doesn't lead to action, just the mere fact of thinking already is negative. Because thought, even though it says if a person thinks but doesn't act, it doesn't count, Hashem only counts the actual deed. But nevertheless, thought is very subtle. So thought affects your soul in a very subtle way. Thought is very intimate. Much more intimate with your soul than speech or action. That's why you can't stop thinking. You can change channels. You can change the content of your thoughts. You can't stop speaking. Even when you're dreaming, you're thinking. Because just like your soul is constant, your thoughts are also constant. It's intimate with your soul. So thoughts are very subtle. So if a person thinks negative thoughts, it impacts your soul in a very intimate way, in a very powerful way. So thought is, is even though it's internal, and you don't speak, and you're not communicating, and nevertheless it has a tremendous effect on your soul. So even just thinking something negative, having inappropriate, inappropriate thoughts, can do more damage in a certain sense than even, than even action. Because you're, you're damaging your soul. It's like when you wear white clothes the smallest stain will show up. So thought is so subtle and so spiritual that, that inappropriate thoughts creates negative energy in a way much, much more than even action in a certain sense. So um, in thought, you shouldn't think, well, it's just thought. What's the big deal? If the, if the Jew is perfect. I mean, there's scientific evidence that right. literally what we manifest what we think. Yes. I mean, it's a scary proposition. Yes. And because our minds are, you know, I mean, my mind never stops. That little, you know... So it's very scary, but that's a right. fact. Right. That's why we have to be very careful about the content of what right. we think. Right. Because when, when your thought is filled with positive, wholesome things, you'll be less likely to speak negatively and to act negatively. When you come to an empty house, that's where all the negative things are attracted. It's like uh, Giuliani's Law, I forgot what he called it, in New York City. He said, when the place is abandoned, it invites crime. When the place is not abandoned, it doesn't invite crimes. So he went after the, the small things. You think it's smaller. Yeah, fix the window, the broken window theory. If a window's broken, it means no one cares, no one is around, and it invites crime. But if you fix the window and you get rid of the graffiti and the squeegees and the graffiti, then the message is that there's somebody here and somebody cares. So it's thought you can think is something subtle, minor, but it's really when your thought is occupied with positive, healthy, wholesome thoughts... You, you won't allow it to get to the next step. You won't allow it to, to get to negative th- speech or negative action. So thought is very powerful. It's not, it's, it's so, he, so if a, a Jew even thinks something negative, even if he, God forbid, would never, wouldn't lead to action, but just the thought itself 
already creates negative energy, disturbing energy and negative energy. And he explains, this is in the case even. This is the case even where one does not actually contemplate committing a sin, but merely indulges in contemplation on the carnal union of male and female in general, whereby he violates the admonition of the Torah. You shall guard yourself from every wicked thing which our sages interpret as an injunction that one must not harbor impure fancies by day, so that he will not become polluted at night. Thus, contemplation on such matters violates the command of the Torah. You know, just like you have pornography, you know, we all know that pornography is uh, um, very negative and has a very profoundly negative effect on us. So you can also, without watching pornography, you can have internal pornography. If, if sexuality becomes reduced to something... Uh, skin deep and, and superficial, then it has a negative effect on us. Instead of sexuality being the holiest and the most intimate and the deepest part within us, and it's associated with intimacy and love and, and relationship and connection, um, eroticism per se without intimacy actually affects our ability to be intimate with ourselves and with others. So it actually creates a distance between us and our loved ones. So by indulging in the pornography, it actually, it actually it's counterproductive. So it's not just when it's an action, but even, even thought. A person just, just thinks and visions, you know, per, pornography itself, it has a, a very negative effect on our soul, um, on our ability to love and be intimate and... Um, to really achieve a satisfying relationship and a satisfying connection. So the Torah prohibits us from just uh, indulging in pornographic thoughts. So just the thought itself, even if it doesn't lead to any action, I'm just, I'm just watching, I'm just enjoying, I'm just, uh, but it, it's, it has a tremendous, creates a very negative energy and it pollutes and clouds and affects us very profoundly in a very negative way. So that's one example. Another example? Or another area in which the evil may prevail in the case of such a partial Russia, when, at a time fitting for Torah study, he turns his heart to inane matters. As stated in the Mishnah, Tractate Avot, he who awakens at night when he has time to study Torah and turns his heart to vanity is guilty against his own soul. In the latter two instances, then, the animal soul's garment of thought has prevailed and manifested itself in his body. In any one of all of these instances, or their like, whenever one commits even a minor transgression in thought, speech, or action, he is called Russia, wicked at that time. The term Russia meaning that the evil of his animal soul prevails within him, clothing itself in his body, inducing it to sin, and defiling it. When he says, in the most subtle subtle thing if a person has a moment to study Torah he has an opportunity he has a free moment and instead he he gets lazy he's awake at night he could have learned Torah and instead he's just reading or just wasting his time that, that is also a sin so again we're talking about a very very subtle sin it's not an overt sin or overt rebellion against God it's, it's, uh, it's a human weakness, a moment of weakness and even that's very slight and nevertheless he is called a Russia because the moment 
the moment that the, that the, the ego soul, the natural soul, prevails and expresses itself and induces it to sin, to violate, transgress, trespass, something that the Torah says, or to avoid doing something you should be doing, like you had an opportunity to study Torah and you just wild your time away and wasted your time. By doing that, you defile your soul. Because you've done something ungodly. In your behavior, you've, done, you've introduced something into your life, something that's ungodly. So the absolute tzaddik is not human, basically. The tzaddik is, yes, the tzaddik is, um, is on a different level. The tzaddik is almost like a superman, a different human being. That's why there's only one or two in every generation. He's like, he's like a genius, like, like an Einstein. It's like a genius. It's a different level. It's not on the regular plane. You take all the university professors and physics together, to Einstein, it's a different level. They can study for a thousand years, they'll never, they'll, they never came up with what Einstein came up with. It's a different, different plane. He sees things differently. The tzaddik is on a different level. It's like the prophet calls the prophet meshuga. The navi and the navi and the prophet call meshuga. Meshuga means abnormal. Yes, there's something abnormal with that. He's on a different level, a different madrega. He sees things clearly. He's... You know, he's indifferent to, to him. There's no, uh, that's the incomplete tzaddik. To the complete tzaddik, there's no distinction. The complete tzaddik, in a certain way, is more down to earth than the others, because to him, there's no distinction physical, material. It's all one and the same. See, he has a whole different perspective on reality. He sees reality from the, the divine perspective. Yes, so in a certain sense, the tzaddik is, yes, something that's purely godly, purely divine. But we all have a piece of a tzaddik inside of us. You know, they say, why there's, there's anti-Semitism. But we never heard of anti-Gentilism. <laughs> you ever heard Jews anti-Gentilism? The Jews are trying to copy the non-Jews. Everyone tries, every, you know, we try to be, we learn from our, from our non-Jewish neighbors. You ever hear Jews hating non-Jews? Anti-Gentilism? No, only anti-Semitism. The answer is, because a Jew has a little guy inside of him also. <laughs> So, so you can't hate the guy. The guy doesn't have a little of a Jew inside of him. So. Is that the guy in Russia? No, but I'm saying the, 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 the Jew represents, it's the Jew within the Jew, the divine spark, the pintalayid, the divine essence. That's what the non-Jew recognizes in the Jew. They see a Jew, that's why the Jew gives them a guilty conscience. They see a Jew, they see a divine spark. They see someone who stood at Mount Sinai. And that's why it bothers them. I just read the, uh, the most famous, most popular, respected writer, I think in Denmark, just wrote a disgusting article about Jews. Disgusting. He's ridiculing the Jews, like, you know, the Jews believe that they're the chosen people, and what's such primitive beliefs. And, and, and Moses came down with two stones, and just because Moses came down with two stones and they have some special relationship with God, you know, I mean, pure anti-Semitism. But very openly, like writing in the most respected paper in, in the country. But so where does anti-Semitism come from? Because they see the Jew, they see something divine. And like Hitler, you know, we gave Hitler a guilty conscience. He wanted to destroy the Jew. So the Jew has that the Jew inside, the Jew inside the Jew is the tzaddik inside of us. Whether we're conscious of it or not, that's our essence. We have the tzaddik. That's why we relate to the tzaddik. When we see a tzaddik, the Jew automatically relates. We connect to the tzaddik because we're looking at ourselves deep down, subconsciously. The tzaddik is overt, what, what we are covertly inside, at our essence, 
The tzaddik is overtly. The tzaddik is overtly a godly being. His whole being is God. And on a conscious level. In other words, by us, there's a big split between conscious and subconscious, potential and actual. The tzaddik, there is no split. His potential is his actual. He wears his godly spark uh, you know, at the, at the, uh, on his fingertips. He lives it. He breathes it. It's... it's He's actualized, totally actualized. So the tzad- and one day we will all be there. When Mashiach will come, we'll all be on the tzaddik. kulam tzaddikim. That will be true. When Mashiach will come, we'll, we'll all be on the level of the tzaddik. We will no longer have a yetzahara. That's what the Torah describes, the coming of Mashiach. When Mashiach will come, we will no longer have a yetzahara. We won't have an evil inclination. We won't even be tempted. It will be such clarity. Our subconscious, that's why Mashiach is a divine event. Because to move, Mashiach is not just physically moving to the land of Israel. If it was that easy to bring Mashiach, buying an halal ticket for $700, and moving to Israel, Mashiach would have been there a long time ago. It's a different type of movement. It's an internal movement. It's a movement from the subconscious to the conscious, where that divine spark, the pintaliyid, that divine essence which is located deep down at the very core and essence of each and every Jew, 14 million Jews, when that divine spark will move, from our subconscious to our conscious, that's when Mashiach comes. At that split second, there'll be a split second, there'll be a moment when Mashiach will come, when that divine spark will emerge. It hasn't happened yet, unfortunately. On the verge, any moment, on the threshold, but we're waiting for that moment. There'll be an inner movement, an internal movement, which will bring with it the external movement. When that moment happens, we'll all be in Jerusalem, the third temple will be built, there'll be peace in the Middle East, there'll be peace in the world, genuine peace. There'll be an end to politics and an end to lies and an end to all the nonsense that we're suffering from today. But that's the... So the tzaddik, in a certain sense, the tzaddik is the truly natural person. <laughs> it's not that tzaddik is a superman, a superhuman, or the tzaddik is something unnatural. The truth is, we are unnatural. The way we are today is unnatural. The way we are today is almost a caricature of who we really are. So he's there, right? He's there already. He's a, he's a citizen of the future and of the past. When God created the world, the world was a Garden of Eden. At Mount Sinai, we were all tzaddikim. When Mashiach will come, so the tzaddik is like a citizen of the future. And that's why it's encouraging, because when you see the tzaddik, you know where we're all going to be one day. That's where we're all going to be. Because if there's one person like that in the world, if there's one Avram, if there's one Moshe, if there's one tzaddik, that means we all have it, because we're all connected. And one day we'll all be on that level. So the tzaddik is a reminder to us what is normal. On the contrary, to answer your question, the tzaddik is a reminder what's normal. What, the status quo is abnormal. The way we are today is abnormal. The fact that we have all these struggles and all these conflicts, it's really abnormal because why would a person self-destruct? It's self-destructive. Why would a person follow materialism per se? Materialism per se is empty. It's meaningless. There's nothing there. It's a dead end. It disappoints. It, it's self-destructive. Why would a person live a life that's so... to create inner tensions and conflicts and live a life that's inconsistent with your own truth, live a life that violent, violently conflicts against your own true nature, your own essence? The status quo is abnormal. The Yetzirah and the conflicts, this is totally abnormal. The tzaddik is normal. The tzaddik is a reminder to us what is normal. And the Jew is the tzaddik to the world. What the tzaddik is to us, the Jew is to the world. We are the tzaddik of the world. Because we remind the world, we give them a guilty conscience, we remind the world of what's normal. That there is something divine, there is something godly. This world is not a jungle. There is truth. There is something real. 
and meaningful. And that's why either the Nandru loves us or the Nandru hates us, but they're not indifferent. They can't be indifferent. They're indifferent to the Buddhists. What do they care? It doesn't bother anyone. They're indifferent to the Amish. They're indifferent to the Indians smoking peyote. What does he care? But they can't be indifferent to the Jew. Because the Jew, consciously or subconsciously, reminds everyone, evokes a response. Either you hate him or not, because the Jew is the tzaddik of the world. Israel is the Jew of the world, whether they like it or not. So this is, this is the reality. So on the, to answer your question, the tzaddik is natural. The tzaddik is normal. It is we who are sleepwalking. We're asleep. And when you're asleep, you dream nonsense. So the whole life as it is today just appears to be a bunch of nonsense. Conflicting, contradictory, it's senseless, meaningless, empty, loud, as the famous expression, right? Shakespeare, right? What's the, the exact quote? Uh, a lot of thunder signifying nothing. Um, much to do about... So this is the illusion. The tzaddik is real. The tzaddik is awake. The tzaddik is alive. The tzaddik is the most natural person in the world. The tzaddik is the most real person in the world. The tzaddik is not a superman. The tzaddik is real. It's us that are totally unnatural. So you can point out the tzaddik in uh, the history or... Sure. The Rebbe was a tzaddik. The Baal Shem all the rabbis, there were many tzaddikim, but there were, there were, like you discussed in the last chapter, different levels, incomplete tzaddik. A complete tzaddik is one in a the, in the generation, one or two in a generation. Even the incomplete tzaddik is very few. You can count them on your, on your, on your fingers. Moshe uh, Rabbeinu, all the avot, the imahot, the patriarchs, the matriarchs, Moshe, Aaron, David, Shmuel, Yoshua, uh, most, uh, many of the Shoftim and the Nevi'im and the Tanaim, Amirayim, the Talmudic rabbis. Maimonides, Yaakov, of course, the patriarchs, the matriarchs. Maimonides, Rashi, Maral of Prague, Rav Shem the Arizal, these were tzaddikim. But the tzaddik is a reminder to us of what's normal and what's natural. It's like the story... Uh, the Breslov Rebbe tells the story, he gives a parable, he says it was a king who loved his people, and he sent his ministers out to administer, to help his people. But the problem was that anyone who ate from the wheat of that year would go crazy, would go crazy, it became insane. So the king sent his ministers to go out and run the country, but he can send them with food, but only enough food to last for a short while. Afterwards, they're going to have to f- eat what everyone else is eating. So it's also going to become crazy. So what do they do? So they mark their forehead. So when they see each other's forehead, they'll see, people see them, they'll remember that in the palace, people are normal. <laughs> they'll, at least they'll have a memory of what normal is. So that's the story of the Jew. Hashem gave us a taste of what's normal. He took us into the palace. He gave us the Torah. He opened up the heaven. He came down to earth. He revealed to us. He showed us what normal is. We experienced, we got a taste of the Garden of Eden. Forty years in the desert, we had a taste of what normal is. We sat with Moshe for 40 years. We had a taste of what's normal. Then Hashem sent us out of the palace, conquered the land of Israel. And in a short while, after a while... The era of prophecy came to an end. We lost our connection, our communication with heaven. And we started eating the same food that everyone else is eating. We also became insane. But the mark, 
the mark on the forehead, this is anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism, he, mar- he gave the Jew a mark. But everyone knows the Jew is different. Because at least the Jew remembers, we know what normal is. And to remind us, every generation Hashem gives us a tzaddik. Because when you have a tzaddik, and you see a tzaddik, when you saw the Rebbe, you saw the Lubavitcher Rebbe, today was actually the day that the anniversary of his marriage to, his, uh, to the Rebbetzin, Chaya Mushka's wife, who was the daughter of the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe. So when you saw a Rebbe and you saw, you saw reality, you saw the palace, you saw what normal is. And it reminds you that what we see today is, this is the cave, this is darkness, this is, and you can't get used to it. This is not normal. There's something missing. We're in exile. You feel very poignantly the exile, that this is unnatural. The status quo is unnatural. We can't make peace with it. You know, a person is in a cave for a long time, you get used to the darkness. And you think that that's reality. And that becomes part of the problem. But someone who's experienced the light knows that this can never get used to this. This is not normal. This is What's normal is outside of the cave. There's a reality outside of the cave with this grass and this trees and there's a sun. And so Hashem gave us that ability to experience godliness, to experience a tzaddik, to live, to see a living tzaddik in flesh and blood and see how he lives and he operates. and You see a real person. So on the contrary, the tzaddik is reality. The tzaddik represents reality. The tzaddik represents normal. The tzaddik represents natural. It's all of us and the status quo, which is so abnormal. And, so, and it makes inexplicable, and it makes no sense. The conflicts, the contradictions, the illusions, the, the delusions. So, to answer your question, the tzaddik is totally natural. It's a status quo, which is unnatural. So this is the Russia. So at that moment, when a person, in a moment of weakness who doesn't have the strength and the self-discipline to actively lead a Jewish life, a Torah life, a good life, a wholesome life, in thought, speech, and action, 100%, consistently, and throughout. In the moment of weakness, he has a failure, whether of commission or omission, whether in action or speech or even thought, or in thought and even action or speech. At that moment, he has become a Russia. But he feels, he immediately feels guilty. Like a good Jew, the moment you do something wrong, you feel guilty. See, a Jew can never sin wholeheartedly. Because the moment you sin, you already feel guilty. The pleasure is gone. The pleasure, you can't, you can't enjoy it 100%. Just not possible. <laughs> We're doomed, you know. It, it just, it just it doesn't work for us. You know, you can try to silence your voice, and, but it's there and it's there. So for this Russia, the Russia of the the Russia whose good is so powerful that he just has a moment of weakness, the good immediately feels guilty. The moment he feels his guilt, he feels it so strongly. Continue afterwards. Afterwards, after this person has transgressed in any of the above-mentioned matters, the good that is in his divine soul asserts itself, and he is filled with remorse over his transgression in thought, word, and action. He will seek pardon and forgiveness of God for his transgression, and if he repents with the appropriate penitence, in accordance with the counsel of our sages of blessed memory, Hashem will indeed forgive him with one of the three forms of pardon expounded by Rabbi Ishmael as explained elsewhere.
the Gemara says that there are three th- types of transgressions. There is, if a person violates a positive mitzvah, a sin of omission, he forgot to do, he did not do a positive mitzvah, he had an opportunity to study Torah and he didn't do it. The moment he regrets it, the moment he asks Hashem for forgiveness, Hashem forgives him on the spot. If, however, he transgresses a, prohib- a negative commandment, a prohibition, then atonement is not enough. He needs atonement. In addition, he needs, he needs Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, he has to wait till Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, together with Teshuvah, helps to wipe away the sin, and then he's forgiven. But if a person transgresses a sin that carries a penalty of karis, a severe sin, where his soul is totally cut off from its source, in such a case, even Yom Kippur is not enough. Teshuvah, coupled with Yom Kippur, is not enough. In addition, the person needs pain and suffering. When a person undergoes physical pain and suffering, that cleanses, it's a cleansing. God forbid, pain and suffering is not an end in itself. It's a cleansing. It cleanses the soul. It frees the soul of all the scars that we create. Just like the psychological scars when we sin, we also create negative energy and negative scars. And the, 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 the tshuva, together with Yom Kippur, together with the pain and suffering, cleanses the soul and it heals the soul. And then the Gemara adds a fourth thing. That if a person in addition to sinning, also did a type of sin that created a chilul Hashem, we desecrated God's name publicly, then none of the above is enough. Yom Kippur is not enough, Yom Kippur is not enough, and even pain and suffering is not enough. In addition to all of the above, the only thing that will atone for you is death. When the ego comes to a total standstill, that's, that death is part of the ultimate atonement part of the process where God created us. It's a way that the soul is processed, that the soul is cleansed and atoned for. And uh, that's the ultimate atonement. But in this case, if a person, whatever sin he committed, if he does teshuva, he will be forgiven. So, so this is the Rasha of Atoyla, the Rasha who is good. But you may ask the question, the obvious question you can ask, if you remember what he said in chapter 1, is that if a person does teshuva, then at that moment he's a tzaddik. The moment he does teshuva and he cleanses himself of the sin, at that moment, at that moment he's a tzaddik. He's, he's, or at least a benani. Why are you still calling him a rasha? He does teshuva, he's no longer a rasha. Because the slight sin that he mentioned here, the, the slight sin in thought, he had lewd thoughts, or he had an opportunity to study Torah and didn't study Torah, or he spoke a subtle slander, not a, an overt slander, a subtle slander, a subtle lie, and then the moment he does it, he regrets it. Even this happens on rare occasions and only temporarily, and the moment he does it, he regrets it, and does truth, and Hashem forgives him on the spot. So at that moment, he becomes a Benini. He's no longer a Russia. Why do you call him a Russia? A Russia of the type the explanation is because the difference between a Russia and a Benini is not just external behavior. That the Russia falls through in behavior, did something negative, and the Benini is perfect, is 100% perfect. Like a person who's on a diet, he's 100% good about his diet. One, he doesn't eat a single junk food, everything is 100%, only healthy and only wholesome. Same thing is, the Benini only acts and thinks and speaks in a way that's healthy and wholesome, everything according to the Torah. There isn't even a, a hint, a trace of anything, anything negative. And while the Russia, as in the moment of weakness, will fall through and will 
do something wrong or think something wrong or say something wrong, at least temporarily, at least occasionally, at least slightly, both qualitatively wise and quantitatively wise, it's very minute. It's like 1%, or not even 1%. 99% okay, but 1% weakness. No. The difference between the tzaddik, the Benini and the Russia is not just a quantitative level. There is also an internal difference. And that is, why is it that the Benini will not sin? The Benini is not just someone who practically doesn't sin. The Benini is someone who cannot sin. Why? Because he has accepted upon himself the yoke of heaven, the fear of heaven, the fear of God, the yoke of heaven. He's like a soldier, a disciplined soldier. He knows when the Torah says, thou shalt not. The guy says, which part of thou shalt not didn't you understand? <laughs> the Torah says, thou shalt not. That's it. Thou shalt not. Not negotiable. When the Torah says, do this, I'm a soldier. It's not negotiable. Like a, any good soldier. A good soldier is loyal. A good soldier follows commandments. That's the definition of a soldier. We're soldiers of God. If God gives us instructions in the code of Jewish law, He's giving us our marching orders. He says, this is what you do. This is your program. Think, speak, act, do this. Don't do this. A person has an inner discipline. So it's not even a question, although he may be tempted to do something wrong. He's attracted to, uh, to things that are negative and things that are not unwholesome. He's not a tzaddik. He's not, internally, he's not refined. He has that attraction. He has a Yetzirah, a very healthy ego, a very healthy natural soul. But, and, and materialism feels very natural to him, but he's a soldier. He took upon himself that discipline that what God says is absolute. God says yes is yes. God says no is no. It's not negotiable. So it's something internal. There's like an internal barrier, an internal fence that he has, that he cannot trespass. The fact that the, be- the Russia is able to tres- trespass, and is able to transgress, and fails, even if it's 1%, it's not a question of quantity or quality. It's temporary, it's occasional, it's only in thought, it's only in speech, it's only in action, it's only a slight sin. That's not the point. The point is, he doesn't have that internal discipline. God's word is not absolute by him. What's easy for me, yes, most things I won't do. I'm a good Jew, and how can I do this? How can I say a lie? How can I cheat? How can I be dishonest? How can I slander? When the Torah says, don't do it. So it's, it, it's impossible. I'll never do that. But a slight sin, a subtle sin, a small thing here and there, that, that I can do. What does that tell you? He doesn't have that inner discipline. God's word is not absolute. He doesn't have the yoke of heaven. He doesn't have the fear of God. He's not, he doesn't have, he's not a soldier. He doesn't consider himself bound. God's word does not bind him. He'll pick and choose what he can live with. But if he can't, if he has a weakness, I'm human and that's it. So the fact that he's able to sin, that means that internally he's like in the level of the Russia. The Russia is a person who's able to sin. They say a, a thief who doesn't have the opportunity to steal thinks that he's honest. <laughs> that's, not, that's, that's not the definition of an honest person is when he has the opportunity to steal. And he could steal. Not someone who's so naive that he can't steal even if he wanted to. Someone who's clever and is smart and has the opportunity and the ability and the means but chooses not to. That's the definition of honest. The Baini is someone who has the opportunity to sin, has the opportunity to be altogether human, but chooses not to because God's word is binding.
So, so it is an internal commitment. It's not just external. It's not just a question of behavior. It's also an internal, it's a matzav nafshi, it's an internal state of mind. That I took it upon myself and I'm firm about it. And I'm strong about it. An internal strength, an internal discipline, a barrier that, that I cannot cross. When the Torah says no, it's no. When the Torah says yes, it's yes. The Russia does not have that conviction, does not have that strength, does not have that, that firm barriers. Even if he's 99% okay. But the fact that he could fall in that 1%, and that he could fail that 1%, tells us that he's not a, he's not a Benini, he's a Russia. So even after he does the shuva, let's say the moment he does something wrong, he regrets it immediately. Oh, I said a subtle lie. Oh, I said a subtle slander. I had a lewd thought for a moment. He regrets it. And he resolves not to do it again. But in his mind, internally, he's still liable to fail again. Because he doesn't have that inner discipline that it's, there's no way I can do this. It's just not part of my life. It's part of his life. So that's why he remains a Russia, but Al Rebbe calls him a Russia of the Tevla. This is a Russia, obviously, who the good, the godly soul, is quite powerful. Because he's 99% okay. And even the 1% that he fails, he immediately regrets it. So yes, he doesn't have that inner discipline. He doesn't have that absolute yoke of heaven, an absolute fear of God that when God says no, is no. So therefore, yes, he's not a Benin. He's a Russia, but he's a Russia Vatavla. He's, he's a pretty good Jew. Just Russia Vatavla. The Tav in him is pretty strong, it's pretty powerful. But the Russia also has a, a strength. And as he said earlier, we learned last week, and when a Jew does something wrong, it does something to your soul. It weakens your soul. The godly soul is very sensitive. It's very delicate. Very, very delicate and very sensitive. And when you do something wrong, the godly soul is hurt very deeply. And it weakens the godly soul. It contaminates the godly soul. When you do something wrong, it contaminates it. When you think something wrong, it contaminates it. It does damage. It inflicts damage. It creates a scar. And it hurts you. And the godly soul feels weaker. Like you recoil. It has that impact. Unfortunately, it doesn't work the other way as powerfully, at least not on a conscious level. When you do a mitzvah, the ego soul, the natural soul is not sensitive. It doesn't doesn't recoil all of a sudden, and it doesn't... uh, We do many mitzvahs, and the animal soul is as strong as ever. Because it's not as sensitive, it's not as delicate. It It doesn't have such a... It doesn't seem to have such a powerful impact. The reverse seems to be much more powerful <laughs> when you do something wrong. That's why it's easier to become contaminated than it is to become pure. To be pure is very delicate. You have to protect it, and it's very fragile. It's a very fragile state. And that's why Jewish law states, if you touch something impure, you become pure. It doesn't say if you touch something pure, you become pure. It should have been the reverse, right? The moment you touch something pure, you come in contact with something pure, you automatically become pure. It doesn't work that way. When you touch something impure, you automatically become impure. And you have to work very hard to regain your state of purity. Because that's just the state of things in this world that we live in. Now, that the, the, the godly soul is very sensitive and it's very fragile. And the moment we do something wrong, it weakens us. It weakens the power of holiness and the power of godliness. And vice versa, the animal soul is not, a, is not sensitive. <laughs> so you can pour Torah and mitzvot, and the animal soul is impervious. It's still, it still trumps ahead and marches ahead, <laughs> full strength, <laughs> it doesn't feel weaker. 
um, and it doesn't get excited so fast and uh, continues tempting us. So, so this is the Russia of the Tavle. Now he's going to discuss the Russia Virale. There is, however, another type of Russia who knows good, in whom the evil prevails most strongly. All three garments of evil clothe themselves in him. He transgresses in thought, in speech, as well as in action. Also, the evil causes him to commit more heinous sin and to sin more frequently. Firstly, it's all three garments. It's in thought, in speech, and action. His failures are in all three, his weaknesses are in all three areas. Secondly, the sins themselves are much greater. And they're more frequent. So in all levels, it's much more advanced. Yet he too is nevertheless described as a Russia who knows good. For intermittently between one sin and the next, he experiences remorse and thoughts of repentance enter his mind, arising from the aspect of good that is still in his soul, that gathers a degree of strength in the interim. However, the good within him does not strengthen itself sufficiently to vanquish the evil, so that he can rid himself entirely of his sins, and be as one who confesses his sins and abandons them once and for all. Concerning such a person, the rabbis of blessed memory have said, the wicked are full of remorse, i.e. between sins. It is also possible that even while sinning they regret their actions, but feel themselves unable to master their desires. This is the majority, we'd say the majority of Jews who, I mean, majority of good, good Jews, consider themselves good Jews, who try to follow the Torah, try to do the mitzvot, but they, you know, it's just weakness, human weakness. We wish we were stronger. We wish we were more focused and more coherent. But we just don't have the strength. So the person fails quite often in all areas of his life. And not just minor sins, sometimes even major sins. But he still, he still, he considers himself good. You know, he doesn't view himself as a bum, as a low life, as a... He's still struggling. He hasn't given up the struggle. The complete Russia will learn later. Someone who gives up the struggle, he stopped fighting. This is a person who's struggling. Yes, he may suffer from addictions, he may suffer from negative behaviors, he may... but he's still wrestling. He still cares. So therefore, he's, he's a Russia of a tavli. The good, he's still defined by the good. The good is, is still a conscious, conscious force, a conscious effort in his life. And he, um, and he feels sorry. The moment he sins, he feels sorry. Even while he's sinning, he feels sorry. He wishes he was stronger. He wishes he had, he was, had more resolve, more determination, and he was able to overcome his negativity. Nothing would make him more happy. When he sins and he fails, he feels miserable. He doesn't feel good about it. He wishes he had the strength. If God would only bless him that he can overcome his weaknesses, nothing would make him happier. So he's yearning, he's dreaming, he's still, his, his goal is still, he's still dreaming of perfection. He wants to be good. But he's just all to you. So this is a person who's still called a Russia of the good is still, The good is still dominant and, and prevails in his life. That is how he defines himself. And that is who he is, ultimately. So you see that even in the Russia itself, you have different levels. Different levels. Continue. These represent the majority of the wicked, in whose soul there still lingers some good. And it is this good which causes these feelings of vexation and remorse in their mind and heart. Right, so we see that the good is still active. It's a viable force in his life. It's conscious. As weak as it is, it's still a force in his life, because you feel it. 
and it bugs you and it bothers you and it nags you and it nudges you and it, it's, it, you know, it's there, it's a live wire. So that's the majority of Jews, good, good Jews. People consider themselves good, but are struggling. Human, struggle. I haven't given up the struggle yet. You does see that there are many levels within the rank of the Rasha who knows good, ranging from one who sins only rarely, only in minor matters, and with the involvement of only one soul garment, to him who sins often, grievously, and with all three soul garments. Yet they all come under the same heading of the Rasha who knows good. The difference between them being to what degree the good within them is dominated by the evil. In direct contrast to the rank of the tzaddik who knows evil, where there are various degrees of dominance of the evil by the good. Just like he said that there are two levels within the tzaddik, the incomplete tzaddik. In the complete tzaddik, within the incomplete tzaddik itself, there were many variations. Because the incomplete tzaddik is one who doesn't feel his evil inclination, but it's there. Subtly, he still has traces of his ego, but he says... Within that, there are many levels. There's one in 60th, and there's one in, 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 in 10,000. could be... So you have one extreme to the other, different levels. If one incomplete tzaddik is right underneath the level of the complete tzaddik, and you have one who's just a little above the level of the benini, so too, within the rush of a tevla, you have also variations. You have one who sins really and... Only, only affects one of his garments, only in thought, and even that really, and even then just a subtle sin. And then you have one who f- sins frequently and sins in all three garments and, and, and severe sins. But nevertheless, the good is still a, vi- is a force in his life, is a conscious force in his life. It's viable, he feels it, he tries to be good, and essentially he's good. But he's all too human. And now we come to having defined the Russia knows good, Alter Rebbe now turns to consider the Russia knows only evil. He who never feels contrition, in, in whose mind no thoughts of re- repentance at all ever enter, is called a Russia who knows only evil. For only the evil in his soul has remained in him, having so prevailed over the good that the latter has departed from within. A person who basically stopped struggling, a person who gave up on the struggle. When a person becomes so addicted to his negative behavior, you know, he almost can't help himself. And even a person who's addicted to his behavior, a person may be ashamed of himself. A person is embarrassed person feels bad, tries to overcome his addiction. That's still a rush of a table. A rush of a rabbi is a person who stops caring, doesn't care anymore. Couldn't care less. I don't care. So I'm wicked. So I'm evil. No conscience. His conscience doesn't stop bothering him. He sleeps, sleeps at night, sleeps very well at night, doesn't bother him. Doesn't affect him anymore. It's no longer a force in his life. So the evil, it's as if the evil inside of him, as if the good inside of him has totally departed within him. It's as if, because he doesn't feel the good anymore. He's going to explain, God forbid, to say that the good has totally departed. Because in this sense, the complete Russia is not like the complete tzaddik. The complete tzaddik is one who has no trace of evil left in him. He's all good sublimated, transformed.
But you can't say that in the reverse. You can't say the complete Russia is someone who has no good inside of him. It's impossible. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. That spark, that pintleid is always there. You can't destroy it. It's indestructible. You can't get rid of it. It's there. So that you can't say that the evil... But it's as if, consciously, it's as if the good is totally departed. He doesn't feel its force anymore. He doesn't feel its effect. It's God. And um, this is a... Just like the complete tzaddik, the tzaddik v'tayvla, is a rare phenomenon. Even within tzaddikim itself, it's a rare phenomenon. One or two in a generation. It's an extreme case. So hopefully, this case also is an extreme phenomenon. If you ever meet a Jew who doesn't feel guilty, when a person reaches a level where he no longer feels guilty and has no regrets and sleeps like a baby, and his conscience doesn't trouble him anymore, doesn't bother him, he is totally surrendered to, to his ego. He's totally surrendered to his addictions. And he's proud of it. And he's happy. doesn't bother him. He gave up on the struggle. doesn't even try. This is, this is a rare phenomenon because many Jews who are sinners, many Jews who are materialistic and sinners, but they're ashamed. They feel guilty. It's a moment of weakness. And they can't help themselves. But they'll be very respectful of Jews who are righteous because deep down they wish they, were, they, were, they had the strength to be like them. So they, they, they're supportive of them. They're respectful of them. And you see, most Jews, who for what do for whatever reason, never had a Jewish upbringing or didn't have the opportunity, and even though they themselves may not be living Jewish lives, observant lives, they're supportive and respectful of those who are. And they support financially, and they're very proud. And they're proud of their Zaydism, they're proud of their, where they come from. But then you talk about a Jew who's fabism a self-hating Jew, a Jew who's negative, who's nasty, who hates the righteous Jew. This is, this is already an extreme, extreme phenomenon. Thank God this is, very, this is not every day. It's an extreme phenomenon. When a Jew becomes so fabisen and, you know, he silences his inner voice, his Jewish voice has been totally silenced. His inner consciousness has been totally silent. And there's no regrets. And it's just, just bitter and nasty. The person, the Jew has such a thick crust that he no longer feels his godly soul. That goodness, that humanity, no longer feels that simple human touch. And the Jew has become so self-hating that he can publicly denigrate and humiliate his own fellow Jews. How can you humiliate your own fellow Jew? It's your brother and sister. It's family. Observant, not observant, religious, not observant. We're all, we're all family, brothers and sisters. When you reach a level, you don't care. You go in public and publicly, in front of the whole world, you humiliate your fellow Jew. And try to humiliate Israel and humiliate your fellow Jew and, and find every, everything that's wrong with the Jew. And if you look long, long enough, I'm sure you're going to find plenty of material. We're not saints. But not everyone is saints. But this is, this is a Russia Vidala. This is a Russia who's so out of touch with himself, who's so alienated from himself, who's so disconnected from his true self, from his essence, from his pintly yid, from his goodness inside of him. 
that consciously no longer feels, it's no longer a force in his life. This is a very extreme case. It's not a normal case. Hopefully, and thank God, they're very few and very rare. But nevertheless, he says, even that Jew cannot destroy the good inside of him. The good in him remained. Continue. The good now stands in a manner of makif over him. The good hovers over him, so to speak, in an aloof and external manner, so that he has no conscious awareness of it. Yet since he still possesses good, albeit a makif, for after all he possesses a divine soul, therefore... As the sage has said, over every gathering of any ten Jews sits the Shekhinah, the divine presence. The good remains. It's there. But it's makif means it hovers over you. You don't feel it. It doesn't penetrate your consciousness. On a conscious level, you don't feel it. It's not a viable force in your life. It's not a vibrant force in your life. As a matter of fact, you're totally, it's totally hidden to you. Totally concealed. You don't feel it whatsoever. You don't feel guilty. You don't feel it at all. It doesn't bother you. And you don't even realize. It doesn't mean it's not there. It's there. Sometimes the soul can cry out in pain and anguish, and yet you don't feel it. Your soul could be crying, screaming, in a silent voice. It's so loud that you can hear it reverberate from one end of the world to the other, but you don't hear it. That's what it means. It's makif. Makif doesn't mean it's up there, it's out there. It's, it's there. It's you. But it's so deep down that you're totally oblivious to it. Sometimes a person could be in such pain that the only way you deal with pain is that you numb out. You can't, you can't deal with it. So you totally like block it out. Like sometimes some accidents, people are in accidents, they just have amnesia, they don't remember it. They block, it's too painful, they just block it out. Sometimes a person can be in such raw pain that the only way they can deal with it, they can actually have very sensitive souls. It's because they have such deep, sensitive souls that they just can't deal with it. So they just, they just block it out. So the soul is there. A Jew, the self-hating Jew, it's there. The connection is there and the goodness is there and the divine spark and divine essence is there. And the, the soul is screaming out in pain. But because the soul is in such pain, the person just blocks it out. On a conscious level, you would never know it. The person is coarse, ugly, spiritually ugly and coarse and self-hating and eaten up with acid, acidic, not acidic, acidic hatred to himself and to anything Jewish. And, um, and it's a tortured soul. This is a tortured soul. A tortured person. A person is so negative. Doesn't feel guilt anymore. Doesn't feel any sense of goodness anymore. Totally disconnected, severed. This is a very tortured person, a miserable person. This person can't bring peace to anyone, can't do anything good to anyone in this world because his whole inside is so eaten, he's so eaten up inside, he's so bitter, he's so harsh. And even look at him, you'll see the harshness, you'll see the bitterness. You look at the face of that person. It's nasty, it's sour, it's negative. Just negative energy all around. So the soul is there, but the soul is buried deep down very deeply submerged. That's what it means, makif. It surrounds. It means you don't feel it consciously. It hovers over you. It's there. Buried, submerged, but it's there. And that's why the rabbis say, as I'll say, that when ten Jews get together, the Shekhinah is present. Not only when ten Jews are gathered together in the synagogue are learning Torah, 
or doing a mitzvot, or praying. Ten Jews gathered together in a cafe in Tel Aviv. Hashem is present. Because ten Jews, you have ten souls. And the divine essence is there, it's present. Because the soul hovers over it. Whether they feel it or not, it's there, it's a reality. The soul hovers on it. Therefore, it's a godly, there's a sense of presence of godliness. The amazing thing is the non-Jew feels it. When the non-Jew sees ten Jews gathered together, he knows that something holy is going on. <laughs> the Jew forgets. But the non-Jew knows, senses it. That's something holy. Ten Jews together is a holy, is a holy event whether they feel it or not. It doesn't matter what type of Jew. It's not only when ten tzaddikim, complete tzaddikim get together, or ten incomplete tzaddikim, incomplete righteous people, or ten benenim, or ten rashavatavlis. But even when ten rashavatavlis, the worst type of Jew you can imagine, when the worst Jews, ten of the worst Jews get together, it's a holy event. Hashem's presence is there. What's the cure for Russia and Russia? Oh, what's the cure? Very good. What's the cure? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> very, what's, the, what's the cure? You want to know. That's a very good question. <laughs> the cure is when you have a Haman. What? When you have a Haman. When you have an Iranian president. <laughs> when you have an anti-Semite. When you have the Haman's of today, and you have, and you come across all these websites, these filled with <laughs> venom and poison and hatred against Jews, and they hate the self-hating Jew with the same passion that they hate the Hasidic, righteous tzaddik. You know, as, as, as is seen in Woody Allen's uh, film when he's intermarried and he's meeting his fiancés, his future in-laws in the Midwest. Hmm. And what do they see? What's the vision they see? A they see a chassid. <laughs> Here is a Jew intermarrying. And they see a guy with a beard, a shrival. What's the vision they see? <laughs> because a Jew is a Jew. Is a Jew. So no matter how much you cover up, no matter you're more American than the American, you're more English than the English, you're more German than the German, you don't fool anyone. They look at you as a Hasidic, you and the Hasidic Jew all the same, and they're right. So, when the non-Jew reminds you that you're Jewish, that penetrates, that pierces through the thick veil and the thick skin and the crust, the thick crust, and this armor that you created around yourself and this reinforced concrete bunker you know, today there are reinforced concrete bunkers that even a nuclear weapon can't reach. But, but then there's bunker bombers. <laughs> so when you, you confront anti-Semitism, and when the Jewish communists who thought that they who invented communism, when Stalin rounded them up and shot them like dogs because you're Jewish, you know, that, that's the bunker bomber that penetrates everything and reminds you. It wakes you up from your delusion. It sobers you up very quickly. It reminds you of who you really are. That deep down the Jews, the Jews, the Jews, and it makes no difference. You can't hide. You can't run. You can't pretend. You can't cover it up. The world will never, ever let you forget. The more Israel twists into a pretzel, twists, bends itself backwards to become loved and accepted as equals, 
the more the world will remind us and treat us and remind us now. You're not one of them. You have a divine spark. You have a divine essence. You're a Jew. You stood at Sinai. You're godly. You're holy. And we're not going to let you go. We're relentless. The world doesn't let us alone. Until you start acting hope. Until you start living a life that's true and consistent with your true self, true nature. So this is the bunker bomber that's able to penetrate anything, unfortunately. It's a very painful way to remember. We should have the wisdom to remind ourselves, not to wait for the world to remind us that we're Jewish. We should remind ourselves in a joyous way, in a positive way. We should celebrate our Jewishness. We should love our Jewishness. We should live it and express it. And ironically, when the Jew willingly and consciously chooses to be Jewish and has a tremendous healthy self-respect, the non-Jew admires you. The non-Jew gives you a standing ovation. The non-Jew will respect you. It's when the Jew forgets and the self-hating Jew, that evokes powerful anti-Semitism. It unleashes powerful forces of anti-Semitism. It's a consequence, not a punishment. It's a consequence. And that reminds the Jew of who he is. Why is it that the, you know, the anti-Semitism itself contains the seeds of the answer to anti-Semitism? Because anti-Semitism, the Jew has the, seems to have the ability to unite the entire world. The only thing to get the, you can get the UN to agree on is when it comes to Israel, <laughs> unanimously. So the Jew has the ability to unite the whole world. So anti-Semitism reminds the Jew, and anti-Semitism is an equal opportunity. They hate all Jews equally. And everyone hates the black, the white, the Christians, the Muslims. It makes no difference. Atheists, third world, first world, middle world, third world. It's all the same. So, so <laughs> what does that tell you? That tells you that the Jew is the, is the single unifying force of the entire universe. We have the ability to concentrate the world like no one else has. Concentrate the world's attention like no one else has. We have the ability to unite the world like no one else can. And the non-Jewish world in its own funny way is reminding the Jew, get your act together. Unite us in a positive way, in a healthy way, in a wholesome way. Live like a Jew. Think like a Jew. Speak like a Jew. Act like a Jew. You're godly. You're holy. Your whole being is godly. Your whole being is holy. Live that way. Live a life that's consistent with who you really are. When you will get your act together, the entire world will come into focus. When the Jew's life comes into focus, and a Jew is in the inside like outside, and outside like inside, then the entire world comes into focus. Then the Jew revolutionizes human consciousness, and then the whole world becomes healed, and the world becomes a wholesome, healthy, wholesome place. So anti-Semitism is the reminder of the Jew to get his act together. And it's the cry. The world is crying out to the Jew. We're not going to let you go. It's relentless. You can't hide we're not letting you go. Because you're the answer. You have the key. You're the answer. We're all stuck till you get, get your act together. We're not going to let you forget. It's not going to help. Nothing is going to work. Till you're proud to be. Just like the story of Haman and Purim. The Jews were so assimilated in Persia. The king invited them to the palace. They felt secure. They had organizations. They were politically accepted. They had a, uh, the, the queen was Jewish. 
they were connected, they had a high, high uh, Mordechai was a minister in the king's palace, the Jews felt politically safe and secure. All of a sudden, overnight, the tables turned, and every last Jew was going to be wiped out. Almost like exactly what's going on today. Same story. The Iranian president yells every day. He's, he says it openly. He says, we're getting a nuclear weapon for one purpose. We're going to destroy Israel. Every day he announces Israel's demise is around the corners. Any moment. He says it. And what's, the, what's everyone's response? Israel doesn't have a single friend. Everyone now is pressuring Israel to, to, to make concessions and to compromise the security because we have to appease the Arabs to atone for America's failure in Iraq. And everyone's blaming the Jews for very respectful voices in this country are blaming Israel for the whole Iraqi fiasco. So, of course, the Jews always the scapegoat and the Jews always pay, pay the first price. And, and it's, it's like suddenly everything turned around. Everyone's against us. Everyone's blaming us for all the problems. No one's going to do anything about Iran's Iraqi react, Iraqi, which is really dangerous. And what happened? The anti-Semitism woke the Jews up. When Haman decreed that every last Jew will be wiped out, suddenly they woke up. They did Teshuvah. They rallied around Mordechai. They fasted. They repented. They asserted their Yiddishkeit. They accepted upon themselves. They willingly accepted upon themselves to have a relationship with Hashem. And then miraculously, we had a, a, a new holiday. We had a miraculous um, um, salvation. So that's the story of the Jewish people. That's our story. So even the Rosh Hashanah, it doesn't help. Nothing helps. The Rosh Hashanah eventually, this will only evoke anti-Semitism, which eventually will wake up the Jew. But we should have the wisdom. We should have the wisdom after our long history, not to wait for the non-Jew to wake us up much better if we wake ourselves up. If we get our act together on our own. Because the world today is a different world than it was 20 years ago, than it was 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 2,000 years ago. The world today is actually waiting for the Jew to assert themselves as Jews, to become the godly people they were always meant to be and to lead the world, to lead the way, to lead the way and to lead the world into a whole new, a whole new era. Um, so, uh, can get to, in them to the level of uh, absolute tzaddik? Well, Mashiach will come, we'll all get to that level. But the Rashavet... Now, now a normal person... We, we, don't have, we don't have the ability, even the Bainani doesn't have the ability to become a Rosh, uh, tzaddik. Tzaddik is only one or two in a generation. That we're going to learn in the next week, in the next chapter. That the, um, the tzaddik is is uh, chosen. chosen. In other words, we, we don't have the ability to become a tzaddik. We will struggle for the rest of our lives. Just like the person who leads a disciplined life doesn't no, mean. If if uh, if you say that we can never be a tzaddik, so why we should uh, struggle? Ah, uh, uh, you're asking all the good questions. That is going to explain in the later chapters. Why did Hashem create us in such a way that we're going to struggle for the rest of our lives? But for us, life is a struggle. By definition, being human, life is a struggle. For us, life is a struggle because we have egos, we have nat- uh, a natural soul. Materialism talks to us. And even if we do the right thing and we think the right thing, and even if we have that inner discipline and we 
take upon ourselves. We have the yoke of heaven and the fear of God and we do the right thing, but we're still attracted to materialism. Even if we, for 10, 20, 30 years, we lead a disciplined life, just like a person who eats healthy and is disciplined, doesn't mean that suddenly he doesn't have an attraction to anything materialistic. It's still, it's a powerful attraction, but he has the ability to overcome it. It's a struggle. He was a tzaddik. Yeah, but Rabbi Akiva had the ability to become a tzaddik. Rachel saw that in him. His wife, Rachel, saw his potential. Rabbi Akiva had a potential. A tzaddik has the potential to become a tzaddik. Like Einstein. Einstein wasn't born Einstein. Einstein was born with the potential to become Einstein. But he had to learn, he had to work hard. But when he works hard, he grew into Einstein. We can work for a thousand years, we'll never be Einstein. You know, so that's, but the tzaddik has it's a potential. It's possible to a simple man to become a tzaddik. Only if his soul is the soul of a tzaddik. Most of us know, 99.9% of us is not possible. God created initially the level of the tzaddik, the soul of a tzaddik, which is a very rare thing. They're born a tzaddik. They're born the potential to be a tzaddik. That's one or two in a generation. Very rare. So Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Rambam, Rashi, Arizal, the, the patriarchs, the matriarchs. That is to say, they are all in the category of the Rasha who knows only evil, the Shekhinah still hovers over them, for they too possess good in the manner of a Makiv, since at such a gathering the Shekhinah is present only in the externally encompassing way of a, of a Makiv, not entering the consciousness of those assembled, therefore their corresponding makif level of good is sufficient to enable them to receive this revelation. With regard to the subject of the Jew, whose animal soul prevails over his divine soul, the following story bears mention. A certain free thinker once asked the Sumat Sadiq, the word Yehudim, Jew, is normally spelled in the book of Esther with one letter Yud before the final letter. Why is it that when the word is used there in connection with the harsh degree against the Jews, it is spelled with two letters Yud? The Tzumach Sadiq answered, Yud is numerically equivalent to ten. It represents the ten soul powers possessed by both divine and animal souls. There are Jews who conduct their lives solely according to the dictates of the divine soul's ten powers, while in other Jews the animal soul prevails, and their conduct is dictated only by the animal soul's ten powers. Haman planned to exterminate all the Jews, even those who were of two youths, i.e. those ruled by the ten evil soul powers as well. But the man persisted. Why, then, is the word spelled several times with two yuds, even after the decree was repealed? To which the Tzimach Sadiq responded, After suffering under Haman's evil decree and ultimately witnessing God's salvation, even those Jews repented and became equals of their brethren, whose lives were led by the dictates of the divine soul and good inclination. Thus concluded Samach Sadiq, the two Yuds, Yud or Yud or Yid, as Yiddish is for Jew, became equal. Tensot, Chabad, Chachma, Bin Adas, 
chesed word, the emotion, the intellect, the uh, expressions, the it parallels the sphere. Just like that, in, in the third chapter we learned that just but like. The, but the Rashi's ten soul powers are from the other side of the. Yeah, sphere. yeah. It, it's, it's, yeah, you have ten. The animal soul has ten soul powers, and the, and the divine soul has ten soul powers. Parallel. Chapter three we learned, just like parallel the sphere of the soul has ten soul powers, and then the animal soul also has ten soul powers the Chabad and the emotions and the expressions, the ambitions, etc. Um, unfortunately, this was this was true throughout Jewish history. Whenever a Jew forgot that they're Jewish, the whole Tanakh, the whole prophet, you read the story of the seesaw, the back and forth, ups and downs of the Jewish people, when the Jew remembered that they were Jewish and had a strong relationship with God, they were successful. The moment they forgot and they assimilated, they uh, they were subjugated and they were, you know, and then they cried out to God in pain. They cried out to God, and then God sent them a, a shayfet, a judge, to help them. And then it was back and forth. So, when a Jew sometimes forgets who he is, and then he encounters harsh realities of anti-Semitism, and it's a reminder. It's a it's a stinging reminder. It's a painful reminder. But it's a wake-up call. It's like when someone is drunk, when someone is so drunk, someone is so drunk on materialism, how do you sober up someone who's drunk? You've got to slap him across the face a few times. So when a person is so drunk on materialism that he has drowned out any sense of consciousness, any sense of guilt, any sense of any connection to anything good, godly, Jewish, noble, refined, he just couldn't care less anymore, just gave up. Just couldn't kill us. Just a coarse human being, but not a coarse human being who feels bad about it. So listen, I'm, I'm weak. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> Today we find a phenomenon, a new phenomenon. The people are proud. It's one thing that people sin, but they were ashamed. I sin, I'm human, I'm weak, but I'm ashamed of it. I'm embarrassed. Today, everyone is proud. You go paraded in the streets. The lifestyle. <laughs> the lifestyle, you're proud of it. You parade. Your lifestyle. So it's it's it's. This is a, like a rush of This is a person who who's good, who's so disconnected from anything good. A person who's just drowned out anything good, has totally severed anything good. Doesn't feel any conscience anymore. Doesn't feel anything godly. A person who's so egotistical. A person who's so coarse. A person who has stifled his godly voice. It's totally stifled the voice. Doesn't hear it anymore. Doesn't listen to it, and becomes forbidden and angry and. Which, of course, is the biggest proof that it's alive. It's there. That's why he says it's a makif. It's over it, but it's there. Because if it wasn't there, you wouldn't be so angry. Why are you so angry? Did you ever hear of a self-hating Irishman? You ever met a self-hating, self-hating Italian? It's only with Jews. It's a uniquely Jewish phenomenon. A self-hating Jew. Because the good is there. You can't get rid of it. Because the good is there. It's makif. It hovers, but it's there. And because the person doesn't feel it and totally tries to drown it out, it bothers him so much that he, he's fighting it. He hates it. Because it's there, he can't get rid of it. Because the essence is good. It, you can't help it. A Jew is a Jew is a Jew. You can't help it. The Jewishness is there. The spark is there. The divine core is there. And that's why you, they fight it. And they hate it. And that's why they have such a violent reaction, such a powerful reaction. So instead of being discouraged, when you meet opposition and anger, don't be discouraged in the country. 
That just proves how Jewish they are. That just proves how alive that spark is. How deep that spark is. The soul is crying out in anguish. And the person doesn't know how to, doesn't know what to, how to deal with it. So they fight it and they hate it. And they, but it's there. And unfortunately, when we get a few smacks in life, and we, something painful happens in life. And no atheists and foxholes. When something, God forbid, painful happens in life, suddenly you wake up in your deep, deep coma, spiritual coma. Suddenly you remember, I'm a Jew, and I believe in God, and it's a reality. And so it, it, it does penetrate. There is, everything, everyone has a threshold. There is something in your life that could penetrate your core. There's nothing that's impenetrable. Everyone has something that could penetrate that reinforced concrete defenses and shield and armor that you put around your soul that doesn't allow you, that blocks your soul, doesn't allow you to feel any good. That you become so corrupted and so jaded and so cynical and so negative and so corrosive and so filled with hatred and venom. Everything ultimately could be penetrated because all it is is a cover-up. That's all it is, is a shell. And underneath it lies a very live wire, a soul that's hurting, a soul that's in pain, a pure soul, a good soul, a piece of the divine spark, a piece of the divine essence, the pintle inside of everyone else. That's why we don't give up. Even in the worst Russia, you have to love every Jew equally. The worst Russia. Once, we'll just conclude with this, Rabbi Melech Mlizhensk, the students of Rabbi Dov Be'er, the Magad Mizrich, whose yard site is Yitzhak Kislev. So the students used to take turns standing guard outside the Rebbe's door at night. And one time, Rabbi Melech Mlizhensk, the Rebbe's colleague, was watching, and it was midnight. Rabbi Dov Be'er called out, he says, Rabbi Melech, do you hear what they say in the heavenly, heavenly court? In the heavenly yeshiva? Do you have to love a complete Russia? Equally, just like you love a complete tzaddik. You have to love every Jew. Even the complete Russia, the Russia of the government, the Russia Gummer, the complete Russia, you have to love him. Equally, just like you love the perfect tzaddik, the complete tzaddik. Because they're all Jewish. They all have the same pintly, the same divine spark. To be continued. This class is part of the Lessons in Tanya project. More classes available at LessonsInTanya.com.